Jesus. I am so glad you're here. If we haven't met, my name's Bruce Garner, and we have begun a series in the book of Proverbs. If you'll open your Bible there, please, toward the center of your Bible, you will find the book of Proverbs. And we have been focusing these two weeks on Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon, who is blessed with supernatural wisdom by God, his life still represents wisdom. People still say the patience of Job and the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon turns to his son and begins to give him life's instructions. And the heart of his teaching is in what we looked at last week in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. He tells him this. You can read it with me, in fact. Read this with me. This is what we as God's people in all ages are told to do. We have a better understanding of who God is because a thousand years after Solomon wrote these words, the Son of God himself, Jesus, who we will celebrate his death and resurrection in two weeks, appeared on earth and showed us exactly in flesh and blood who God is. But in all of God's ages and all of God's dealings with people, this is what He tells us to do. Read this with me. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. One simple way to read the Bible is to ask yourself as you're going along, what are you being told to do? Are there explicit instructions or commandments that you have been given? What are the instructions in this verse, Proverbs 3, verse 5? What are you supposed to do? You're to trust in the Lord with how much? All your heart, heart, with everything. Thank you, honey. Well done. Exactly right. Some of you woke up when the child helped... uh, the sermon by giving the right answer. Well done. You are to trust the Lord with all your heart. And that's hard because life takes you in all kinds of different places. There are hard things that God will ask you to do in which your faith will be trusted in a way that it never has before. That's why it goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Literally, in all your ways, know who God is. Not just a nod of a head, that's an English understanding of acknowledge. As you move through life, know who God is, and He will make straight your paths. But the heart of it is this issue of trusting the Lord. Because I always have another option besides trusting the Lord, I always have the option to trust myself. That's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and specifically, here's another instruction, do not lean on your own understanding. And that's the battle, that's the war at all times. I told you last week, pretty much all the time, I think I'm right. Just like you do. Don't you think you're right? When you discover that you're wrong, what do you do? You change your mind, and then, magically, you're right again, and it's wonderful. How we have this much trouble in a world with all these people being right, I don't have any idea, but that's the trouble. The Lord, who actually made the universe, knows everything in it, sustains it by His own strength. He knows the way for you to go. And what you're being asked to do is to trust Him with all your heart, but trust is a hard thing. There's a man 
a story I grew up hearing, but I did more reading about it this weekend. A man who was so good at what he did, his last name represented that line of work. You know you own the market when they call what you do by your name. He was known as the Great Blondine. He was French. And in 1859, he did one of the most amazing things ever. You can see drawings of it that have survived to this day. Blondine raised the money to run a rope across Niagara Falls. 1,100 feet. I think it was a 160-foot drop, according to one news report. And he would walk from end to end. He charged 25 cents for the privilege of being there to watch him do it. Probably a lot of money in 1859. And well worth it to a lot of people. Because a lot of people came out to watch the great Blondine race up and down this rope. And to keep them interested, he didn't just walk it. He walked it on stilts. He walked it blindfolded. He covered it in a sack. I couldn't find a drawing or a picture of that. How amazing would that be? Okay. He put his manager in a top hat on his back and walked across the rope. He walked up and down the rope with a wheelbarrow. He once walked out to the middle of the rope with everything necessary to make himself an omelet, and he had breakfast in the middle of Niagara Falls, 160 feet over the water. Having done all that, he hauled out the wheelbarrow and said, how many of you believe I could put one of you in this and cross Niagara? And everybody cheered. And he said, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd got a lot quieter. <laughs> Finally, one man, according to the story, actually did. He jumped in the wheelbarrow and smiled up at the great Blondine. That's what I'm talking about. That's trust. Everything else was a profession of trust. Yes, we believe you can do it. You want to try it? Absolutely not. See, that's the way trust works. Trust always shows up. Trust, first of all, always means doing. Trust is always visible. What you actually believe always shows up in your actions. Everything you talk about, you claim, you announce, you celebrate, that you're not actually doing, it just actually means you don't really, truly believe it. You haven't moved to the point of trust. And that's what Proverbs 3 is about. For the sake of time, I actually only gave you the first half of Proverbs chapters 3, verses 1 to 12. But I believe they were meant literarily to be read as a unit. In Proverbs 3, in the first few verses, Solomon draws his son close and says, I'm giving you instructions now and I want them to be so close to you that it's as though they were, you were writing these things on the tablet of your heart. I want them as close as something you tie around your neck. And here's the heart of the matter. Son, I want you to trust in the Lord with all your heart. I want you always to choose God's understanding over your own. I want in every new path you undertake, I want you to know who He is because when you do that, He'll put you on the right path and He'll clear the way. And then he gets really specific. Proverbs chapter 3 and what follows, beginning in verse 8, are the specifics, some of the specifics of what it looks like to trust the Lord. Go back up with me to verse 5 if you have your Bible open. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, know him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. That's the battle. Thinking that you're right. What you should do instead is fear the Lord. In other words, revere God. Have such awe and admiration from God that you turn away from evil. Here's the promise. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That is poetry to say wherever you trust the Lord, you will have a bone-deep kind of blessing. It won't be superficial. It won't be shallow. Wherever you trust the Lord, you will be granted wholeness in your whole life, healing to your flesh and refreshment down to your bones. And then he gets specific. Because, much like Blondine asking the crowd if they thought he could handle a man in a wheelbarrow on the tightrope, that's an easy thing to applaud until you, he turns it on you and asks you to get in. The next few verses give two different kinds of instructions, and in the way of Proverbs, a commandment is given and it's followed by a blessing. Not every proverb is like this, but this is one of the typical things of the Proverbs. You're given a commandment, and you're promised a blessing if you obey it. It's an incentive. It's a picture of the why you are being told to do this. And one of the things in reading Proverbs is, is every commandment in Proverbs that is followed by a blessing, does that apply to me 3,000 years later? I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a tip as we move along. But when Proverbs gets specific, when it moves beyond the motto and the instruction of trusting the Lord with your whole heart, it actually gets tough. It gets specific and it gets practical. Here's what I mean, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Simple enough, but also a little bit removed from our time. How many of you are currently farming? How many of you own a barn? Not many, right? We're so secluded in this wonderfully technologically soaked little part of America. My wife took a junior high class to some kind of field trip that involved seeing farm animals, and one of the kids was shocked and heartbroken to learn that her In-N-Out cheeseburgers come from cows. <laughs> don't know where she thought they were coming from. Maybe they were just manufacturing them in the back. I don't know. But they had to have a little intervention there and help one of the kids understand that these amazing things come from those cute animals out there in the field. When we read these two verses, we're being transported into a world that's not that much like ours. Verse 8 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. There's a few words there that we would need to understand. Let's work on the first line. Honor the Lord with your wealth. What might that mean? Wealth is money. You and I don't depend, most of us at least, don't depend in an agrarian society, but these people 3,000 years ago are given a specific instruction. As you gain wealth, in other words, as you make money, what you're told to do is to honor the Lord with it. And with the first fruits of all your produce, that takes us back into their world. What in the world are the first fruits? 
When I was a kid, I didn't realize it at the time, I had never read that word in the Bible, but when I was about eight years old, I think, no, probably nine or ten, because we were in a different community where there was a lot of farming in Mexico, I later realized, many years later, it dawned on me that someone, out of kindness to our family, was giving us the first fruits. Where I grew up in Mexico, about an hour away is prime apple-growing country. And the first and best apples I'd ever seen in my life came out of Chihuahua, Mexico. I'd never seen apples like this, but one of the families in the church had an interest in an orchard. And they used their little inn during harvest time. They would go in and apparently hand-pick every apple and bring us about two cases full of the biggest, best, most beautiful apples, tastiest things I'd ever had in my life. I didn't see them for the rest of the year because the good stuff was being exported. Can you guess where Mexico was sending its best apples? Right here. So the apples we got all year were these little not-too-good things, but these first fruits were amazing. That's what a first fruit in the ancient world of Israel was. As people who depended upon the land brought in what represented wealth to them in all of their harvest, God said, the first and the best part of that, a generous portion of that, and don't skimp Give me the best, you honor me, you honor our relationship by bringing that to me first, number 10, the promise, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What's the transferable principle? This. If you really trust the Lord with all your heart and you do not lean on your own understanding, what you will do is give to the Lord first and then trust Him to bless me. And many of God's people in all countries and in all ages through farming days and technologically driven days put God at the bottom of the budget. And many people pay their bills, save a little if they can, get through the week, and if there's anything left in that check right before the next one gets deposited, they'll give God not the first fruits, but the remainders, the dregs. God covers that from the very beginning, 3,000 years before Jesus was born. He is instructing his people in wisdom and giving them a specific and difficult thing of what it looks like to trust him. And the question is, does this carry over? Is this something that we see continued in the New Testament? And we do. We see it specifically in the letters of Paul, who, remember, was a Pharisee whose mind was absolutely filled with his Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't know specifically what Paul's personal knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures was, but men of his class, and he was considered at the top of his class in his time, famously had most, if not all, of the Hebrew Scriptures committed to memory. And as you read Paul's letter, and they're under the inspiration of God, because God is actually speaking his own word, but he's using a human being to do it. You can see how familiar Paul is with his Old Testament. Many times you'll be reading and your Bible will indent a section of Paul's writings because he's not writing now, he's quoting. And everything that Paul had brought into his heart and mind pours forward when he starts writing to the first Christians. And I find all kinds of carryovers and parallels, including this imagery that comes right off the farm. Let me show you an example. 
1 Corinthians 16 is the first instruction that Christians are specifically given of how they are to handle their money in giving. The church at Corinth was a famously difficult church. They broke Paul's heart. He had to write them two letters. At the end of this first letter, he's giving them specific instructions of how they are to do what all the Christian churches in that region were doing to help another group of believers. Persecution had engulfed Christians far away from them. Some were apparently being pushed to the edge of starvation. And these Gentile Christians had decided to repay the favor. The gospel had come from elsewhere. Now they're going to send money back to keep their fellow Christians from starving. And here's the instructions. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. In other words, your fellow believers. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Galatians also have a letter written to them in your New Testament. That's modern-day Turkey. It's a Roman province in Paul's day. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Here it is specifically. On the first day of the week, and that's today, that's Sunday, because the first believers moved their corporate day of worship from Saturday to Sunday to honor the Lord's resurrection. They started gathering together to sing, to hear Scripture, to pray, to encourage each other through the Scriptures. This was already happening in the ancient churches. Here's a part of their service. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Do you hear how practical that is? Where did Paul ever get that idea? I'm convinced from the wisdom of Proverbs and from his Hebrew Scriptures that gave him a very simple principle. As God blesses, in keeping with how God blesses, you scoop off the first and the best part and you honor Him first. Then your life becomes a genuine adventure of trust as you wait and see how God provides. Then Paul had to write him another letter because they were a tough church. And the second letter to the Corinthians came a year later. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes you get motivated to give and you promise to give and then you kind of put it off. It happened to the Corinthians. So a year later, he wrote them this in 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, check this out. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And we're back in this farming world, and we don't use these terms anymore. Let's make sure we all know what we're talking about. What does it mean to sow with an O? If you sow with an O, with an o you're planting. What about reaping? harvesting. So here's the simple idea. If you don't plant very much, you won't harvest very much. If you plant generously, you'll also harvest generously. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about wealth. He's talking about the money they had promised to give. Here's the instruction. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's going on in this congregation? There are very different levels of income. 
And the principle of every person according to their income, everyone, poor and rich, honoring the Lord first with the first and the best part of their giving carries right over into the New Testament. Each one of you should give what, in your, what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And here's an exciting, amazing phrase. God loves a cheerful giver. There's not too many times in Scripture where you were explicitly told what God loves. This is one of them. Now, why is that? Well, four years ago, I had a for instance of how God's heart may be filled with joy, why God may love one of His kids when He becomes not only a giver, but a cheerful giver. This dawned on me a few weeks ago. Somebody asked me one of these little mind exercise questions. If your house is on fire and your family's safe, and you can only carry out, you can only save what you can carry out in your hands, what are you grabbing? You ever had this, someone do this to you? I have weird friends. They, they kill me on a regular basis, right? If you died tomorrow, what would happen in this church? Well, I hope somebody would say something nice at the funeral. Um, <laughs> And now they're burning my house down. <laughs> but it got me thinking, and I said to him, you know, one of the first things, and it'd be easy because I could actually put it on the top of my head, one of the first things I would say was a pair of Oakley sunglasses. You know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, you don't know the whole story. When one of my sons was 14 years old, he got an in at the Oakley factory, and his buddy took him in with one of these I-know-a-guy kind of deals. And he brought a really cool pair of Oakley sunglasses back that he bought, and this is the first time I ever saw him spend a good chunk of money of his own. He had a little job, and he was getting paid, you know, whatever paltry wages you pay a 14-year-old, but he'd saved up about 100 bucks, and I think the glasses cost about 20 Told you it was a great deal. And he came home, and he showed me those glasses, and I said, man, those are cool. I like those. Just like that, he said, you can have them. And I've had them ever since. I've changed the lenses twice. I watch them this, with the same interest that I watch my keys in my wallet. They're not as valuable in any way. In fact, at the temples, they're starting to wear out. Why do I love them so much? Because they represent the first act of genuine sacrificial giving that my young son was able to do. Everything else had come from things we had given him in the first place. Now he's working, and in a moment, I wasn't hinting, I wasn't fishing for it. Those are cool. I wish I had a pair like that, you know. <laughs> when I go to the church, the sun in the morning, none of that. I just admired them. He said, you can have them. I've worn them practically every day. They go everywhere. I've taken them to Israel. Why? Not because they're the best glasses in the world. They're pretty good. But every time I put them on, I remember something that you can't force any of your kids into. You can teach, you can model, you can pray, but that kind of spontaneous, generous, cheerful giving is something that only God can produce in their heart. And here you're being told, when any one of God's kids gets it, and says, wow, you made the universe. You sent your son this same book. Will, Paul will exclaim that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, referring to the death of Jesus on the cross. 
If you can love me and give to me that way, I will gladly give to you. Not under compulsion, not reluctantly, not, oh, there it is, duty done. No, God loves a cheerful giver. And watch the promise, I'm convinced, flowing from Proverbs through Paul's mind onto the pages of the New Testament. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. If you flip the budget and put God at the top of it and give progressively with greater and greater trust, God, who owns everything, is always able to bless you abundantly in all your life. Not just your finances, he can make your blessing bone deep. It can cover your whole life so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will be able to abound in every kind of good work. This is the kind of generous giving that we are being commanded and that God is promising to bless. And it's not only Paul, it's also Jesus. Look in Luke chapter 12, please. And I want you to watch Jesus deal with a tough guy in the crowd. One of the many, many instances that proves to me that Jesus was the best teacher of Scripture and the best public speaker in the history of the universe is the way that he dealt with interruptions. Not every public speaker can handle interruptions. If you were like me and you've been in church a lot, maybe you've, the pastor's made you cringe because he can't handle interruptions. And when somebody's phone goes off or a baby starts crying, he gets kind of passive aggressive and mean. You ever been in those situations? Heard an old southern guy said, you know, when the man of God's up here trying to preach the word of God, it's awful hard with a baby squalling and it's just ruined the service, right? We're all cringing for him and for everybody in the service. Jesus did in trouble with that. He got interrupted, people shouted things to him, people burst in all the time. He's always in control. Let me show you a for instance and watch him making it into a teaching moment. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Man, that's awkward. And if you remember, these are real people. You imagine someone standing up in the middle of this service saying, Bruce, Will you please tell my sister to share the inheritance? Mom wanted us both to have the house. Oh, man. Tough. Jesus always poised, always in control, the Son of God running the world. Watch. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Whew. Somebody ever tries to draw you into their family's fight over money, you remember what Jesus said. Son of God said... I haven't been placed in that role in your family, but now he's going to turn and teach. He said to them, not just to the guy who interrupted, he said to the whole crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. I wonder if that guy's regretting shouting at Jesus at this point. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Orange County, California says we disagree. We think the whole point of life is to pile it up, right? Image, status, belongings. Here's Jesus 2,000 years ago telling you what rich people on their deathbeds learn. 
Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. We're back to farming because that was the heart of the economy then. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. My question to you, is that wrong? This guy's succeeding and this guy's expanding. Is he wrong? No. I hope you're trying to succeed and expand. If somebody's taking you under under their employment and you're going to work and you're on a clock or on a payroll somewhere tomorrow, I sincerely hope you're trying to help move that ball down the field. This guy's being blessed and he's making normal, reasonable provisions for expansion and progress. Here's where he gets into trouble, verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's the American dream, isn't it? Isn't that kind of what we're all working for? Aren't you hoping the pension holds out? There's a story this year of a man in a position of power that had worked in the federal government for many years, and right before his full pension kicked in, in retribution, they fired him. And now the whole thing's at risk, and every middle-aged worker across America kind of clutched their heart and said, oh man, that's brutal. That is rough. I hope nobody ever does that to me. What a heartless, difficult position to be in. Oh my goodness. This guy's made it. Listen to him. I will say to my soul, in other words, I'll say to myself, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, boy, that took a turn. Here's God interrupting his reflection. Here's God bursting into the story, and he calls this man a fool. Why? This night your soul was required of you. In other words, this is the night of your death. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the answer is, he has no idea. See, that's the way it is with belongings. You can put it in writing, but you can't be sure they go where you want. There's things tied up in court. There's families torn apart. There are friendships broken every single day. We have several professions that are dedicated to settling these fights. Why? Because... Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now Jesus is going to dot the I. Now Jesus is going to put the exclamation point at the end. He doesn't always do this. Usually he tells a parable and he just lets it sit there for you to figure it out. This matters so much because of the interruption and because of the obvious fight in that family, Jesus is going to tell us what the parable means. It's the last sentence on the screen. Can you read that with me? It says this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow. What does it mean to pile it up for yourself and not be rich, not be generous toward God? God calls that man, God calls that woman foolish. Now let's think about this from God's point of view. 
Is God in trouble somehow? Is his economy flipped? Does he need your money? Does he find himself in a FEMA-like situation where you have to, he has to request funds and take money from other places, including you, because otherwise he's not going to make it? Could it possibly be that? No. Why then does God say, be rich toward me? Give me the first fruit. Sometimes I'll give you barely enough. Other times I will bless you with abundance. In all times, in all places, in keeping with your income, I want you to scoop the first and the best part of it off and honor me with it. Why? Not because God wants your money, but because He's always after your heart. And if you don't trust God with money, it's evidence that you don't actually trust Him with much at all. This is why Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and part of what that means is honoring Him with your wealth. Go back to Proverbs chapter 3. There may be an even harder thing coming next, and that has to do with this, not only giving to the Lord first and trusting Him to bless me, but also receiving the Lord's correction. Look at verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. In other words, son, as you navigate life, as you walk along with God, He's told you to trust Him with all your heart, but you won't always do it. There will be times when you prefer your own understanding. There will be times when you think you know better, and at those times, like a loving father, God is going to correct you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to train you, and it's going to hurt. That's why we're told, do not despise it. Do not grow weary under His discipline. Verse 12 tells you why. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You're not made a promise here. Did you see that? You're just told to receive the Lord's correction. You're told to receive it well, but no promise is made. You're given in this case something better than a promise. You're being told why you're being corrected. A really smart person once told me that people can endure almost anything if they know why they have to put up with it. So a cancer patient enduring radiation and chemotherapy, sick to death, but endures it with patience because they know it will save their life. Illness, suffering without cause is much harder to bear. Proverbs 3 verse 11 says, son, you're going to be corrected. You will receive the Lord's discipline. You will receive the Lord's reproof, another word for correction. When that happens, don't be contemptuous of it. Don't, go, don't be angry with him and show contempt toward the process. Do not grow tired under his correction. And here's why. The Lord reproves him whom he, what? Who he loves. And it says, the last line, as a father, the son in whom he delights. That means that when the Lord sets to correcting you and training you as painful and difficult as the process may be, what Proverbs is telling you is, this means that he loves you. So number two, I will receive the Lord's correction as part of his love for me. 
in that pain, in that discomfort, and in that trouble, I will work to remember that this does not mean that the Lord has walked away from me. On the contrary, it means that He has drawn close, close enough to correct me, close enough to make it hurt without harming me because He wants me on His path. He wants me walking along with Him. Does this carry over into the New Testament? Yes, absolutely, so much so that Hebrews 12 actually quotes these very verses and makes a point about discipline. The passage you're looking at on the screen compares your parents doing their best with God doing His best, which is perfect, in correcting you. Check this out. For they, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And you can hear some pretty painful and sometimes pretty funny stories of what mom or dad thought was best, right? They're doing the best they could. But they're imperfect. They get it wrong. Sometimes they're unfair. Sometimes they're harsh. Sometimes they lead over into abuse. Sometimes they deal with discipline through neglect. Your heavenly Father, the one who loves you, the one who a thousand years after Solomon is actually going to die for you in the person of Jesus, he's nothing like that. He's perfect. Your heavenly Father has never walked away from a corrective situation with any one of his kids with any regrets. Let me encourage the kids. Parents, have you ever corrected your children and later regretted the way you did it? Raise your hand if you have. I got both of mine up. The kid was a little foolish. I acted like an utter fool in correcting him. He was wrong. I end up apologizing. Why is that? Because I'm an imperfect, sinful, self-centered father. But your heavenly father says in Hebrews, he disciplines us for our good, not to vent, not to get even, not to punish, not to harm. He is always disciplining you for your good that we may share His holiness. In other words, He's in the process of making you like His Son, Jesus. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Boy, that's an understatement. My dad was as consistent as gravity with discipline. And never in those childhood and even into the teenage years did I say in the middle of it, Dad, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for restricting me to the house and taking the keys away for two weeks. This will be great. Women, I'm in my 40s. I'll really appreciate this. This is teaching valuable lessons that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. I didn't do that. I was upset. Because for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Watch the farming analogy come back. But later, discipline, correction, training yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Why does God invite you to trust Him with all of your heart? Because it's the safest, best, most joyful thing you could ever do. And that trust doesn't extend only to the easy parts. Trusting God with all your heart means training, trusting Him with the hard stuff, stuff like giving. Mike, you could ask my children. This isn't preacher talk. I'm not making this up. One of the most consistent things I've taught and pleaded with them with, with regarding is their giving because I God, want God to bless them in their whole life. I don't want them to practically move Him off the throne and think that their finances and their livelihood is in their hands alone. I want their livelihood to be in much better hands than theirs. I want their livelihood to be in the hands of their Heavenly Father.
That's why the giving piece matters so much. What about this reproof? What about this correction? The temptation there is to say, when God turns and trains you and corrects you, yes, it's going to hurt. And at that moment, the instinctive, selfish, and childish reaction is to run from him. Like I once ran away from my dad when he was set about to correct me. That was a mistake. That just extended the process. What would your father have you do instead? To lean into his discipline, to immediately come correct, to immediately say, I get it, I'm back on the path, and I understand that you're doing this because you love me, and in fact, you love me so much that you delight in me. I'm your son, I'm your daughter. And you bear up with faith under his corrective hand because you know how much he loves you. What am I trying to tell you? This, trusting the Lord with all your heart means doing the tough stuff that he tells you. The spiritual growth for many of you, and I don't know what your season is, and I don't know what your tough stuff is. You're one step away from really growing and going to a whole other level in your relationship with the Lord whenever you yield whatever is hard for you, whatever you've kept your hand around because you really think your understanding is best. I'm on that journey with you. I know Him and I trust Him more by His grace, more now than I did 20 years ago. And a man like Joe Shirley Sr. standing in our congregation at the age of 96, having lost his wife some time ago, giving his testimony, that was 10 minutes well spent because that's someone who's walked with God for life telling you that it's worth it, telling you that it pans out, telling you that the Lord can be trusted with everything, including the tough stuff. Let's pray together. Could I invite you to turn the hard things over to God right now? Maybe it is discipline. Maybe it is giving. Maybe it, it is your workplace that takes so much of your time, 40, 50, more hours a week. Maybe it's your vocation or your ministry. Maybe it's your children. But specifically in this area of wealth and the area of receiving discipline, does your life evidence that you're trusting God with that? If not, Talk to him about it right now. And if you're one of those who's been so close to trusting Jesus, you're right on the edge of faith, you come here week in, week out, and you haven't trusted Jesus yet with your soul, trusted him with your sins to forgive them, let me invite you again to trust him. Thanks be to God, Paul said, for his indescribable gift. The gift of Jesus is greater than any amount of money any wealth, any longevity, it's the best gift of all. It is life itself offered to you so that you may live forever. So whatever hard thing you're trusting yourself with, my invitation to you is to let go of that and to trust the Lord with all your heart instead. Father, as we conclude this service through this worshipful act of giving, as people struggle with their decisions and Many of us, Lord, me included, painfully unlearn maybe years of trusting ourselves more than you. Do your good work. Cause us to trust you and love you and do what you say so that we may have in the place of that obedience the blessings, the refreshment that you have promised to anyone who dares trust you. Pray for those especially, Lord, who are right on the edge of trusting you, Jesus, as Savior. Give them the grace to do it this morning, I pray. We all have difficult things in our lives. 
illness and disappointment at work and difficulties in our family, those are all hard things that we would rather clutch to ourselves. Help us instead surrender it to you, knowing that you are trustworthy. And receive this offering as one expression of it. In Jesus' name, amen.